We've been doing this podcast now for long enough, like nine months, that we're able, for the first time, to turn back to certain topics to see how they've evolved. Presumably, if you're listening to this, you know at least a little bit about crypto art, and thus you'd know that you know nine months in crypto art is a veritable eternity, enough time for an idea to seed, take root, and sprout in the hearts and minds and timelines of crypto art's many constituents. And that's exactly why we're talking about what we're talking about today with who we're talking about it with. Una, the masterful crypto performance artist, was our first ever guest on the Mocha Live podcast. This around the time when I myself was becoming familiar with her work in the first place, when I first wrote about her work, and when, at least from my perspective, Una's totally anonymous, performative personality seemed to fully arrive, fully formed all at once in crypto art. But it wasn't just Una who was arriving. Seemingly, performance art as a whole seems to have arrived here as well. Now, those in the know would know that artists like Sam Jay and Edgar Fabian Frias have been experimentally affixing various performance art tactics to the blockchain for years now. But something in the water seems to have shifted, and crypto art at large seems to have much more of an appetite for performance, an interest in being challenged by performance and the conceptualism it brings with it, and a thirst for the relationships with artists that's really hard to come by in static artwork when the artists themselves aren't physically present. All of which is to say that nine months later, as Una, Aset Mocha, and Zora prepare for the opening of AND, a performance art and blockchain exhibition curated by Una and which you'll hear about all throughout this podcast, it feels like a perfect moment to not only discuss the artists in this exhibition and the environment around it, but our present moment in crypto art culture which this exhibition is being launched into. Whether or not you've heard Una speak before, you're in for a treat, especially when talking about performance art, but also just in general. She's brilliant and so precise in her points and takes us in and out of the processes and perspectives inherent in performance art. Things I'd never thought about before, but which I'll never be able to ignore going forward. So please enjoy this conversation about performance art with Una. Stay tuned to Mocha's and Una's Twitter pages for more info on everything and a performance art and blockchain exhibition. And without further ado, the Mocha Live podcast. Good evening, everybody. It is 5.01 p.m. Eastern Standard Time here in beautiful Brooklyn, New York. My name is Max Cohen. This is the Mocha Live podcast. And joining us this week, a very special guest, uh, Una. Welcome back to the program. Our first uh, repeat guest from outside the Mocha ecosystem. So happy to have you. How are you doing? Oh, thank you. Um, Max, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, and it's always a pleasure to talk about performance art. So, yeah, I'm doing marvelously. Awesome. So... The last time, Una, you were on the podcast, it was our fourth episode. I think this is like 32 or 33, how time flies. Uh, and that was back in February. You were fresh off uh, your two-part performance, Milking the Artist, which you did with Lori Baldwin, which, as far as I was aware, uh, and I wrote about this too, was one of the first, and perhaps if not the first, it was certainly among the most audacious examples of performance art merged with the blockchain, right? The performance itself had an NFT correlation like to a specific token. And then there was a wallet wash trade executed on chain, which I'm sure is still visible. And that was a really interesting conversation because it was in large part about the kind of entry of performance art in a larger way to the blockchain. And now what we've seen throughout 2023 is 
a much wider embrace of performance art, it feels to me, than I can remember before Milking the Artist. A couple of examples like Dev, uh, David Henry Nobody has exploded uh, in popularity with this very like unique aesthetic. Um, Edgar Fabian Frias has been doing you know performance art in various versions since at least 2019. Um, Operators Human Unreadable, which it was a generative NFT, but it corresponded to a choreographed performance thereafter. Like all of these different methods of exploring performance in the blockchain seem to have emerged and obviously they were being thought about and conceived before milking the artist but here they are kind of all erupting in this moment so you just before we had got on made the very cryptic comment that this week was when the whole world started to pay attention to performance art so you know some general overview questions coming but what's happening in performance art right now what is causing this mania Right. Okay. Well, I actually want to rewind and I want to say that, yes, Milking the Artist was definitely what I perceive to be one of the first performance art wallet washes. But I think that this fetish of being first is really something that we hold on to, which I'm trying to question more and more because what is the value of really being first? And that first word almost connotes like, yeah, that I was the first one to do it. And I just really don't think that performance art works that way in any shape or form, right? Performance art is something which is so amorphous and exists outside of a frame. Sorry, that's my dog, Dolly. She's going crazy. Um, Even trying to pretend like you're the first one at it is like claiming ownership. And the entire reason why I'm so attracted to performance art is because it is hard to own, (laughs) Right? Like you have a performance art, it happens live. It's not like an object. It's not like a painting. It's not a video. It's not a file. Of course, performance artists use documentation to sell their artwork and that makes it kind of have like an on-chain value. Um, but I think that performance art in many ways still defies ownership and it challenges us to really reconceive of how we perceive art and art objects and value. So I don't think that there's really value in being the first. And I even write about this in um, the essay that I did for this curation, because a lot of the artists that are in here, like you mentioned, are quote unquote the first, right? Like Edgar Fabian Frias is the first witch that I know (laughs) Um, that's been on blockchain. Sam Day is one of the first kind of like queer artists. Um, And then, yes, we have David, we have um, Violet Bond, we have Dadagan and we have myself. So the, the notion of being first is really not as important to me as much as we're contributing. Um, so that's a really long-winded answer before I even get to the question that you asked. <laughs> and I'll, ju- I'll just stop you really quick. Um, yeah. Una, what, what you're referring to is uh, AND, this exhibition that uh, you've put on in collaboration with Mocha and collaboration with Zora, a performance art exhibition, which or a blockchain-based performance art exhibition, which is, again, kind of oxymoronic in and of itself, which is why I love this topic so much. So you're here obviously because that's been swirling around all of our heads we want to get more into that topic as well but Uh, well I just noticed like this week I saw that there's like someone else doing a curation about blockchain and performance art and then there is the feral file exhibition um that I think is uh curated by operator um so definitely check that out if people are curious about performance art check out what operator is doing on feral file check out this exhibition which will land um which will open very soon and then yeah there was art the more and i think that people are starting to realize that performance art is a very thin line between performance art and conceptual art and why i decided to call the exhibition or the curation and 
is because I wasn't trying to give one limited or narrow definition of what performance art is. I think that all of these artists have their own way of interacting with the blockchain and their own way of interacting with performance art. So, you know, the gulf between my practice and Edgar's practice is massive. The gulf between my practice and Violet's practice is massive, between Violet's practice and Dadagan's practices, they're, they're massive. So what we're trying to do is show how wide performance art goes in this web. And now, of course, things that are wide and nefarious um, are hard to understand. So for me, it was about creating, okay, look at how uh, drag artists, uh, queer artist, a drag queen does performance art. Look at how Dadagan does performance art because Dadagan doesn't even have a body. So I think that right now with blockchain and with the advent of kind of these like digital identities taking more and more power um, in the world and in our landscapes and our daily landscapes, um, there is something to be said about the definition of performance art changing. And I think Dadagan is a really good example. And I mean, like, performance art goes... Sorry, I just need to plug my computer in. Can I have a second? Or else I'm going to lose you. Of course. I should just note that if anybody watching this wants to learn more, and I certainly encourage you to, about and, uh, uh, there's a free mint on our Zora, uh, or I guess just Zora, that's linked in the chat, um, or not the chat, in the comments below the stream. So please check that out. Again, it's free. Um, and even if you don't mint it, just getting behind the kind of thought process of and is really, really powerful. Thanks, Max. Yeah, of course. I, I mean, you know, you kind of were sending that back and forth to me when you were ideating it. And I was just so impressed um, with this kind of like coffee table book aesthetic. And I'm, I'm impressed with a lot of things that you do. But um, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that performance art holds a specific power because it forces you to look at it. And I think a lot of the larger... I don't know, when I think of a unified crypto art aesthetic, obviously that's silly. But a lot of the pieces that I think capture attention are pieces with a lot going on that kind of force you to, they, they punch you in the face, right? Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I have a, a infinite objects here um, of an artist called Vex. And Vex's works are, it's, it's cartoony, it's pop art, it's very, very bright and motion centric. And I think that whether we're talking about the works of X copy or like the monument game from a couple of weeks ago, like these works that are forcing you to look at them seem to have some kind of a pull. Performance art, your work, um, David's work, Violet's work, I mean, everyone in this exhibition, like these works have some kind of a power uh, maybe maybe that's best codified in, in Edgar Fabian Frias's work, um, this kind of like magical power to direct and divert your attention into whatever ecosystem or conceptuality is being explored there. So I'm curious still, like, why now? Why is the why are these past few months been such a like a feckoned ground for the exploration of performance art for and for the acceptance of performance art? What's happening in either the broader you know, artistic continuum in general or in crypto art, in your opinion? Yeah, it's a good question. And I wouldn't claim to have the definitive answer, but things that I could see as like through lines and thread lines is that people are realizing that a static PFP is kind of boring. <laughs> and that there's so much more that you can actually question. And there's so much more that you can actually interrogate when you have performance art. And I've been going around saying this for quite some time now and it's in the coffee table book and I've like tweeted about it many times, but I think that it took a little bit for the crypto art community to understand generally what generative art was 
and why it was valuable. And I think that people still largely don't understand the cultural legacy of generative art, probably don't even understand like kind of who its uh, original kind of pioneers were back in the 50s, back in the 60s, back in the 70s. And I think that people understanding what generative art is has actually allowed in kind of a twisted or backwards way, and I keep trying to draw this connection, for people to understand what performance art is. Because in the same way that generative art relies on a code that is written by the artist and an interaction of chance and requires audience participation to occur, right? The artwork in generative art is not really made until the wallet interacts with the code. Now let's use wallets as an extension of our identity, right? So the doled down, the, the analog version of that is the artist and the performance art like piece creates the codes, aka I write the script, that's the framework, there's a strong degree of engagement, requires you, the audience, to come in for actually make it happen. And I think that kind of having that understanding of generative art in a weird way is helping us understand kind of the relevance of performance art. I mean, that's such a beautiful description of like that middle ground between like creation and experiencing, right? It's like uh, you know, the Buddhist parable of a tree falling in the woods, if nobody hears it, like does it actually make a sound? And it's like a performance that's not viewed by anybody. I, you know, maybe this is a little bit too, you know, Zen koani. But if a performance has no audience, does it take place? Sure, but like I think that there is something to be said for that, right? Like I just did a series of three performances in Berlin for Berlin Art Week with Expanded, and at the first performance there was maybe twenty five, thirty people. At the second performance there were five people. At the third performance there was maybe again like 20, 30 people. And as the performance artist in this, I tend to negate the audience to some effect because while their presence is necessary, and even in the performance that I did, their interaction was necessary. They had to cut a string that literally poured milk all over me. They needed to have like a big action within the performance that you need to be giving the same regardless of if there is an audience or not. So from the position of the artist, the artwork can still happen but one thing that I do find especially powerful about performance art is normally it's a really level playing field between the artist and the audience. And that's something that you really don't get very often. This is interesting. And this is going to lead into my next point. But I think that there's this constant narrative around crypto art, especially as it relates to static crypto art, and which I feel very much in writing, right? This idea that it doesn't matter how well these pieces sell or how publicized they are. It's about, you know, the spark or the magic that you or the fulfillment that you get from actually creating them right i could write mm -hmm. manuscripts all the all the damn day um and i'll still get something from them, even if they just sit in my desk but the performance itself requires it can't just be conceptualized it has to be performed it has to be put out into the world and experienced by somebody and that's a lot of power to give over an audience right it's like the art can't even become itself it can't even really make its way in the world unless there is the experience and the Okay, you're waving your fingers. I just think that's exciting. Keep going. No, sure. So this is really interesting in crypto art specifically because just like you did with Milking the Artist and like you've done many times since, there is an ability to essentially – it's not sapping the power from the audience so much, but there is a, an ability to provide more opportunities for an audience to arrive than just at the moment of performance, right? And I'm thinking specifically within this um, and exhibition, right? Like Violet Bond's work, who I love, this incredible photographer who works in the Australian Outback and a lot with um, their body. Having this physical product 
that is uh, reminiscent of the performance itself allows an audience to engage with the performance even after chronologically the performance has ended the performances themselves out in the outback i believe don't have an audience so the audience exists entirely thereafter um and you can wrap up a number of artists in the same fashion whether that's sam jay's like fashion focused work or edgar, uh, edgar fabian frias's and david henry nobody's video pieces like they're all these performances that are happening not for an audience at the time but the audience is kind of allowed to accumulate it later which is an, a paradigm shift for performance in general. Um, so I'm wondering, like, if a performance can be unmarried from place and experience, like, like momentary experience at the point at which it is conducted, like, what does that mean for performance in general? Well, I think that performance has a long history of always being documented, right? And documentation being the art artifact that really follows a lot of performance. And we can look at Pivolotti Wrist's work, we can look at anything in the Julia Stoschek um, collection. We can look at Valley Export's work in which she would kind of go around these themes. Like there's a really interesting union between Violet Bond's work and Valley Export's work. Valley Export did this series kind of where she was um, hugging with her body shapes and industrial buildings and her body was always contorted, right? And now that was a live performance for anyone who was passing by the same way Violet's work is probably a live performance for all of the ants and all of the birds. <laughs> the skies and everything that is in the great Australian outback. Um, but it is documentation that requires, um, yeah, documentation really that is how the audience engages with it. And now I think that what makes these works not video art is perhaps that it's less concentrated on advancing the medium of video and less concentrated on advancing the uh technical skills perhaps of using like video and it's more focused on the documentation taking a very specific role so in the case of Violet's work for instance one thing and David's work as well um one thing that I find particularly interesting is like while we feel like we have agency with where we're looking because when I look at Violet's work I always look primarily at her because it's a moving body and then I'll also scan like the perimeter and I'll be like oh what's happening around it you know like it becomes very curious about the nature and the context right the staging of the camera is forcing me and you, the audience, to have one perspective on the artwork. It's not like we have agency in how we view the performance. So the documentation is really an extension which artists can use to further the concept behind the pieces. So if we look at David's work, for instance, David's work almost always follows that like strict, strict view. You yeah, have straight straight ahead on his close on his face. Yeah. Straight ahead. Now, if you and I were watching that in, live in performance, it would be impossible for both of us to stand there. Right. But documentation of it forces the audience to engage with the performance in one particular way. So I think that there's been a great deal of artists doing this consistently. Um, and that documentation is one of the most important things when it comes to performance art which is why I think that having blockchain as a reference to say, hey, this performance happened on this date by this artist and it was, you know, minted here for the provenance, it's really, it's really powerful. Now, whether or not blockchain is going to be equally as powerful for adding fiscal value to these performances, my practice and the work that I've done with Sam J alone says yes. <laughs> it does make a difference. It makes a massive difference. And I think that when we start to value performance art, we will see that it is indicative. I'm not saying that performance art is like the chicken or the egg, but I think that there will be a really nice correlation between how much we start to appreciate different voices 
and the value of different voices, right? And I'm going to go in a little bit of a diatribe here, but if we hearken back to, let's go back like feminist avant-garde. So, right, we have the first digital art era happening in like the 1960s, 1970s. And then in response to that, somewhat, not directly in response to it, there is the feminist avant-garde movement. That's like Hannah Wilkie, that's Crowley Schneeman, that is Bally Export, that's all of the Orlan, it's all of these female artists that are making in response to technology, but using their bodies as a canvas, right? And using performance and public spaces in new ways that is challenging with artists. So I actually think that for every kind of push forward that we have seen so far with artwork that has happened digitally, which is very valid and very wonderful, and I love digital art, it's not that there is a counter pushback of analog flesh performance. And I am very happy, very happy to be contributing to this emerging kind of digital ecosystem by reminding and by integrating the physical body into that space. Well, let me push back on that slightly. Like mm. how, how also, I think somebody's ringing my doorbell. So if you hear an annoying buzzing in the back on that, so that is, um, Do you need to how, I'm not letting them in. I'm on a podcast. <laughs> um, but there is an inherent separation from the body because of the screen, right? And performance works so heavily on nuance. And, you know, uh, Milk Plus Scissors was your exhibition or one of the exhibitions that you were performing in Berlin. And being in that room and smelling the smells and seeing how the milk splashes off of you onto the floor, like these nuances of the thing, are so important to the visceral character of the performance, right? And sometimes that is captured in this force perspective, but oftentimes it's lost. I think a lot of the artists in this um, exhibition do a really good job of forcing that viscerality to take place. I mean, even like that Sam J piece behind you, there are sensations. Yeah, there are sensations, right? This. Um, Sam J's skin is, is shining and shimmering and that's going to have all sorts of connotations. Violet's work, you know, Violet is constantly like covered in soil and you're, it's, it's these creative ways around the problem of like viscerality and immediacy, which you're losing and which I'm not sure you can get around and which I can't really see a way that any kind of um, documentation doesn't by nature reduce from the performance Am I off base or does this, is this just a problem that requires novel solutions, really creative, you know, minds to, to understand, confront and kind of like supersede? I'd like to answer with a metaphor. Excellent. <laughs> Actually, it's not a metaphor at all, but fine. It's a, is it a simile? It's, it's something, it's one of those things, words. An extended um, allegory. You know how marvelous it is when you see a big full moon in real life with your eyes and how it looks that yellow color because it's the right at the perfect thing. And then when you get your phone out and it becomes this little shit on a little shit screen. Now there's two ways of responding to that. Some people then get pissy that the phone isn't better and they want the phone to get better. Or you go, oh my God, how lovely that this is something so beautiful that I can only experience its full beauty with my eyes. And I am fine with, you know, I think that documentation is really important. So I hire professional photographers because that is their avenue. I try and hire studios whenever I can to get proper documentation of the performances. So that way there's like a very professional quality to them. I am also all right 
with the idea that in some of these performances, it functions like the moon. It is big, it is beautiful, it's right there for you to see. And when you get your phone out, take a photo if you need to remember what that was like, but it's for the ephemeral nature of it. And actually, I was having this conversation yesterday because we were talking about kind of like the proliferation of artifacts on blockchain and who will pay to maintain these, you know, like all of the IPFSs, like they're all going to run out of funding at some point. So unless you're using something like Arweave, who's actually going to pay for the maintenance of these things? And I think that there's something to be said for having value in something ephemeral. And it doesn't need to be something monumental that you can always look back and click back on for it to actually be relevant. Like my best performance art, I do in airports. I iterate mm. in the airport. None of those people are paying me. None of them even know I'm an artist. They just think I'm a fucking weirdo. But it's in that moment and it's through those rogue splash interactions that sometimes it's not that you need to change people with art, but if you can make someone think with art, if you can make someone feel if you can give them something that touches them or speaks to them or sparks an idea in them in one way, why does it need to be owned? Why does it need to be forever? Yeah, I want to talk about that for a second because that's a really interesting way of looking at, I think, what is commonly seen as a problem in crypto art. Right? That's like Art Gnome's entire thesis with Club NFT is your shit is unsafe. This art is held on servers that you cannot trust. And the reality is a lot of them are going to disappear suddenly and without warning and permanently. And of course, on a value level, that's terrible. And of course, on the level of experiencing this art in the long term, that's terrible. But it's very interesting to hear you talk about this as kind of a boon to the experience of the art because it forces you to be present with it, right? If the piece in a museum, there's a reasonable expectation that the pieces are not going to be lost in a fire, or rather, they don't have a countdown clock on them until they're destroyed. But a lot of the pieces in crypto art we don't know that clock and we can't know that clock, but they do. There is a, a, a timer ticking constantly down until that art becomes, it vanishes more or less from existence. And it does kind of force you to appreciate the things in your collection or the things you're seeing in a different, a kind of different air. It's a lot more, I don't know, analogous to life in that way, right? The kind of classic platitudes about, oh, life is only precious because the short life is only precious because it ends. That's traditionally, it feels like outside of performance, been the antithesis of what art is hoped to be. Art wants to be eternal and it wants to survive. But I don't know. I'm just, I'm kind of enchanted by this idea that we're surrounded by art that all has a, a death sentence and we don't know when that death sentence that is. And if we don't appreciate it while it's here with us, we're only doing a disservice to ourselves. And the art itself has the ability to shine so much brighter because it has that impermanence to it. Anything to say about that or should we move on? I know that was quite a, a little rant. No, no, no. I think that's a fair assessment. And like, look, I'm not a very Buddhist person. I don't really have time to wait for that. So I understand wanting to have things. All you got is time. And is time. Um, but I do think that it is, you know, when you think about performance art, traditionally defined by five things, right? It's body, it's duration, it's context, it's space, or I guess space is context, presence of the artist and artists and audience. So performance art and to make performance art is always to have some degree of a relationship or a tension point with time as a tool. So I think that that is relevant, but yeah, let's move on. 
<laughs> yeah, sure. Well, you touched on this before and I want to return to it, which is the idea of like sales, right? The very kind of nitty gritty reality of creating art. And that is you need this art to in some ways generate an income so that you can continue to make art, um, especially with performance that, like you said, if it wants to be done right, if it wants to be done or if you want it to be done right, if you want it to be done with intentionality, you need to have professional photographers, studios you need to partner with people. You need to have some kind of like a physical impact on the world. That's just the reality of the thing. And I'm hoping we can use the sales mechanic that you're using on the and exhibition to open up a larger conversation about the possibilities and difficulties of selling performance art. So before we get into that, just generally, how does one exhibit performance art? Is those two things are kind of seem at odds with each other and exhibit being a permanent collection of something or a, I guess, a semi-permanent showing of a thing. Whereas the idea of performance is that it is inherently momentary. So how can all of these people be coming to this exhibition at various times and getting some slice of the same experience? Yeah. Well, I think that um, there's some really good museums that focus primarily and really good collections that focus primarily on performance art. Um, the Julia Shoshek, uh, and I always pronounce the last name wrong, um, collection within Berlin is really terrific. And when you go through there, it's kind of like it's a lot of video installation um, and you move through those spaces with a very keen awareness that there has been a lot of choice in terms of the seating, the lighting, the color all of these things in which the documentation is displayed. So it is to say that after the performance has finished, quote unquote, now the performance begins in a way of consumption. So context is still deeply built around the artwork. So I think that performance art is not something that you can just willy nilly hang up on a screen. Um, you know, like I think if people were to go through a bunch of like the artifacts from my performances and you were to just see those on chain, you would not at all understand the performance. So in that way, I think performance art relies heavily on narrative, heavily on education and heavily on, yeah, kind of providing ways that people can digest the entire trail of it. Um, I think that that's one way that it should be exhibited or it ought to be exhibited. And then when it comes to this exhibition, um, most of these artworks are just like, we met, we had a game of performance art bingo that I made for the artists. Then we sat around and chatted for an hour and a half. Then we met three weeks later and we chatted again for an hour and a half. And that to me felt like a really nice aspect of keeping this curation in the medium of performance art. I'm tired of these curations that happen online where it's, you know, 13 artists and you're each given one work and then congratulations, you get a Twitter space where the artists don't really get to talk to each other. Everyone's going in this weird line talking about their work and it just, they've never felt that fulfilling to me. So when I was approached by Zora to do a curation and Mocha to do a curation at the same time, I was like, okay, cool, let's marry these two um, and let's actually do a curation that I would like to be a part of. And I think that that for me, regardless of what the social or public-facing um, quote-unquote exhibition ends up looking like, for me, the act of doing it this way, and in particular the act of the sales, um, which we can get to, is part of the performance, right? You need to give artists space, dialogue, and funding to communicate with one another, and everyone's artwork actually gets better. <laughs> everyone's artwork gets better. Everyone has a good time. The community actually grows because you're strengthening relationships built on shared ideas 
or even deferring ideas, not on, yeah, we're both part of the same exhibition. Let's hope that we sell some artwork. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a an int- maybe a futile parallel, but in my non-artistic life, I watch a lot of football. And something interesting surrounding the like studio system around football, right? The halftime shows, the pregame shows is what has happened is you have these long desks filled with former NFL players and analysts. And each year, it seems like there's more of them, five, six guys. They all sit around this desk and they all get one blurb within, you know, three minutes between advertising slots, one blurb about something that might happen in the game. They're not talking to each other. They're not having a conversation. It's almost like they're all existing within their own little silos. The point of doing that is to bring as much name recognition as much participation of famous figures into the space. And yeah, again, and it's using just the, the identity or rather the reputation and hoping that that's going to take the place of something more genuine coming out from underneath it. And I admittedly don't know enough about the exhibitions happening in the space to make a generalized statement, but I know that with some of these exhibitions, at least, and some of the exhibitions I've seen, it does seem like we're just throwing names together because this one's going to bring their audience. This one's going to bring their audience. I know people like this person's work. And it's not only that you're not giving them an opportunity to have a dialogue. It's that there's no desire for a dialogue in the first place. The system is only set up to maximize the amount of reputation that is being kind of gathered around this one spot. I, I just, I completely agree. And I have felt that in my own experience and, you know, one thing that was difficult for me, and this is why this probably won't be the last curation on performance art that I will do with Moga, um, is that basically I felt like this pressure internally to be like this tension point between when you are doing something about performance art and blockchain, and that's why I called it and, because it's not claiming to be a definitive full stop. It's not period, it's not exclamation point. It's and, because this is something that will expand, that can expand, and that has trajectory to expand. Um, It's intermediary, right? It only exists in the middle of something by nature. Yeah, like I just felt this like pressure of doing something that I wanted to like include all of the performance artists that I knew. And then it's like, oh, but you actually can't include all of the performance artists. My brain cannot handle like that many artists at once. When I learn about someone's practice or when I go to like an exhibition, I like to really sit with someone's artwork. That's why I don't really like group shows that have like, 25, 30 people, I would much rather see like a group of like 10, 12. And I would go regularly because it's much easier for my brain to sink into the visual language as and to draw the connections between all of the artists when there's fewer of them. So for this exhibition, it's six artists. That's not a lot of artists. And I got asked by both teams, are you sure you don't want to include more artists? And it's like, it's not that I don't want to. Of course I want to, but I also wanted to make sure that every artist could get paid to do a commission which is important. And have their work say something right within this context and be able to speak loudly and not be drowned out by association, Uh, not to put words in your mouth, but yeah. And not that like, this is claiming to be the end or the only, like there are so many other performance artists that I could like rattle off right now who aren't in this curation. So I really hope that this curation allows other people to get into it, allows other people to kind of start to get curious. And from like a consumer point of view, that's why I decided to ground this book or ground like the exhibition in this book, because I also wanted to show like, yes, there is a large history of, you know, performance art that we are just blatantly ignoring. And it's not that, oh, you're bad, you're dumb, you're ignoring history. It's like, no, look at how much more rich 
look at how much more knowledge, look at how much more expansive you can actually be when you understand the historical lineage of these practices, these mediums. And I think that that's one thing that crypto art does suffer from, really. I feel like we fundamentally lack a lot of art education um, because we are so hell-bent on being these kind of like wild, 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 wild West pioneers, which is great, love that, very about that. But in my opinion, if you want to be someone who is contributing to the general field of art, you need to know where that field has been and what has happened and who's come before you. And crypto art's also very hierarchical in how it discusses itself as opposed to connective. Even I, you, my God, don't I mean, you, well, like the idea of like being first, it's like that doesn't actually matter except if the community around it makes it matter. It's a lot more interesting to talk about the firsts or the pioneers as opposed to who was like the first to, I don't know, do this or that style, who was the first to experiment with this or that medium, mint on this or that platform. But um, that's neither here nor there and is probably the, a better topic for a different conversation. Um, because I want to talk about the sales mechanic, um, right. not just of the and exhibition, but of um, performance art on blockchain in general. So please correct me if I'm wrong, but the way that you've set up the sales mechanic for and is that there is an opportunity to purchase one NFT and then the purchasers of those of that one NFT will be airdropped an addition to work by all of those artists, right? Which, yeah, if you want to just correct me and then we can go on. I mean, the premise is right. I would just say that in a different way or I will give you a different picture to hold with it. Um, we are making the act of collecting this artwork inherently performative. So there is one NFT, which is for sale at 0.15 ETH. That one NFT, when people purchase that, the proceeds of that one NFT get split evenly between six artists, and then they get access to a claim page where you can collect additions from all six of those artists. So it's basically one NFT, split profit, and you get six artworks. Now that's one angle. Second angle is each artist is individually minting their own piece as an open edition, but at a higher price. So you can buy as a collector, say, oh, fuck it, I don't like Una's work, but I really want Sam Jay's work. You can buy Sam Jay's one of one and only, or open edition for 0.8, and you only get Sam Jay's work. You can buy Una's open edition for 1.2345678 ETH, but you only get Una's work. So we've all priced our work higher than the group edition. And that is to throw the question back to the collector, to the audience, to say, hey, how much do you value artists? Because we are collaboratively valuing each other. And all of the proceeds split evenly between the artists. That's something that was important to me moving forward with this. So you did such a better job of that than I did of describing it. But obviously, this is a very novel sales mechanic. And one of the things that's attracted me to your work is that each of your performances has a kind of novel sales mechanic um, attached to it. And it reminds me of this kind of paradigm that I constantly need to remind myself, which is at the highest level of anything, there are no archetypes. The best writers, there's, they have nothing in common with each other. They are all individual. I mean, yes, they you can draw parallels, but like artists, right? Each one needs to be judged on their own merits. It's, it's futile to make generalities and it's in fact reductive to make generalities. So each performance demands a unique way of collecting it that is based on the performance itself. 
which inherently turns the entire ecosystem around that piece into a performance. So, I mean, are there performances that are uncollectible by nature or is it just a matter of creatively kind of pulling the performances, I don't know, conceptual core apart thread by thread until you find where it can be captured and sellable in a way that honors it? Yeah, so I think that as artists who are actively integrating with blockchain and because of blockchains, um, quite obvious correlations to finances, to commerce, um, I am not impressed when the blockchain is merely used as a place for transaction. I believe that the blockchain should be used in some way to conceptually reinforce the piece or to conceptually reinforce the artwork. So I have used many different, many different sales mechanics all the time. And actually, um, I always try and select them by what I think would actually enhance the piece and interrogate the same concepts through the sales mechanism. So like a perfect example of that was when I did malnourished art, um, which was basically my response because I was so fucking bored out of my goddamn mind of seeing these really like boring artworks of nude women sitting on pianos, like selling for a lot of money. Um, and so I wasn't even planning to do the piece. It just like was a Twitter thing that took over my entire weekend because I just sent out one feed. And then five minutes later, I was like, cool, if this gets 100 likes in the next hour, I will recreate this artwork and I will throw this back to you as a test. Can a woman be in charge of her own image? Can that be artwork and will that be valuable? Um, which is, again, a Crowley-Schneeman question because she has a statement which is like, can a nude woman artist be both image and maker? Right, so of course, like the same question, new technology. And of course, the post got over 100 likes. So then I get nude and I sit on a piano. <laughs> I Photoshop it, I make it black and white. Now, it'd be one thing to mint the piece and leave it there. But that's not really interrogating blockchain. I wanted to put this pressure on this idea that there are a lot of people who perhaps support the message that I'm saying with this, that the overcommodification of female bodies is rampant, that it's unoriginal art, that we need more women to be in charge of their own image and their own agency. And that does have fiscal value, right? I know that there's people that believe that. Those are the people that keep me alive in this industry. <laughs> They're the people like you that I enjoy talking to. But doesn't mean that those people are always the ones with the most dispensable income. And in fact, they're usually not. <laughs> exactly. But their voices are so valuable as well. So then I decided, okay, this will be a very fun, interesting experiment in which I will essentially, and mind you, I'm totally anonymous and I have, I would like to think a reputation where I've done right by everyone and I've kept my word every time I said I would. But you have to remember that this is Twitter and this is completely anon. So I could just totally rug people. And I said, look, I've started a party bid. If you bid in the party bid at any amount, I will send you your ETH back if this party bid gets above the price that this shitty male artist sold a female artist for, uh, or a female body mm -hmm. for. And, and course, correct me if I'm wrong, but if it didn't reach that price, you would also send the ETH back. Yes. So they were getting their money back either way. And it, of course, reached that price. And this is where I think the piece would have gotten really interesting. I do wish that there was like an individual bidder that would have come in and tried to outbid the party bid because then the party bid would have had to like reassess what they wanted to do and how they would have done it. But we didn't get an individual bidder. Totally fine. I sent those people back all of their work. The original artwork is still in my wallet 
because no one actually paid me for it. But then I gave them business editions on Tezos. So this is like a multi-chain integration in which the very aspect of kind of the sales and the distribution is an extension of the concept, right? The piece is questioning, why is it so hard for women's like artwork to command value when images of nude women can command high value? We throw that question back to an audience. We let people who want to participate, participate in the way that they can. And that for me has always been the most interesting and meaningful integration of blockchain into performance art and into any of these things. I mean, that was a really incredible encapsulation of, I think, what I was hoping you would uh, <laughs> kind of enlighten us on. I have uh, I have some more kind of like you specific questions that I think we I'd like to end off with today, if that's okay. Um, that's and the first is, you know, the performances that you were putting out at the beginning of the year uh, were very guerrilla, right? Butter, milking the artists, these things that were, they were unannounced, they were in public, they were provocative by nature. I mean, all your work is provocative by nature, but it was provocative of the unsuspecting by nature. And the work you've done since then, uh, in large part, much of it is very um, controlled. It's controlled performances with a set audience who have a certain set of expectations and you know, you're know, you not shooting up out of a manhole cover, um, right? <laughs> and I'm curious, like, what are the lessons you've learned from that dichotomy? What attracts you to one versus the other? I'm just curious, like, kind of how that experience has been for you with these two kind of like diametric opposites. Yeah, it's interesting because they've all carried on more or less the same theme. Um, and my God, I can't even begin to describe the rush, the high, the thrill that you get when you're not meant to be in a space and all of a sudden you command everyone's attention and you start doing your art. Like that is a rush but your nervous system gets fucking shot. <laughs> like your body is in weird situations. I mean, my body is always in weird situations as you know, and as the nature of a performance artist, your body is kind of subject. I feel like performance artists usually have a different relationship with their body than the average layperson because we're used to using it as an extension of a canvas or thinking of the body as a paintbrush rather than like, oh, this is this precious thing that I have to take care of. I'm like, no, 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 let's do some weird and wild shit. Um, and it's funny because, you know, I really don't see a lot of my performances as provocative, um, even though that is a word that I get back. Um, it just, I don't know. I just don't see them in that regard, even though I, I can understand how they can be seen in that light. They just don't have that emotional resonance for me. I think the biggest takeaway though, that I've learned from the gorilla to perhaps non-gorilla, I don't even know, I guess like it's just for different concepts, for different works. One works and then the other doesn't work. Like there is something super relieving about knowing that the gallery or the museum or the art fair has invited you to be there <laughs> because then it's less stressful and you actually get to see a performance to its final execution, right? Like when I'm doing a performance in a gallery, I have control over the ending of the performance. When I was doing performance, like when Laurie Baldwin and I did Milking the Artist in Miami at Art Basel, we had no control over the end of the performance. I mean, I mouthed to her, like, I can see security coming, stop the performance. We need to cut the show now. But then we get dragged out and we have no control over that. Same with the Met Museum. Um, when Sam Jay and I did uh, Failsafe at Avalanche Summit in Barcelona, again, that was kind of, it wasn't guerrilla, but it relied so heavily on audience intervention that 
we didn't really know the end of the performance. The end of the performance was when the audience said it would be. And same with what I just did in Berlin, the audience cuts a string. That is essentially the climax, so to speak, of the performance. And I have no control over when that happens. So I think in all of my performances, I can deeply analyze or I can see, God, I just burped in my mouth, sorry. <laughs> I, can, I can see the through line. Um, do, you want, do you want me to edit that out of the audio? No, hilarious. I don't care. <laughs> okay, great. Um, sweet of you to offer. Um, I can see the through line of like a lack of control that is happening in in these performances, and it is in relationship to power. Now, I'm not going to talk about this performance online because it's strictly forbidden. But I will say that I am finally in a place where I am doing a performance that I've now done two private previews in. London at the Anchor Cultist Gallery and I'm doing one private preview next week in Los Angeles because I'm making this an iterative performance. This is the first time where I'm totally in control and so for the first time that I did it I did women and non-binary audience only. The second time was a men only audience. The third time it's going to be a mixed gender audience but I'm iterating with how I look and now I'm not talking about the performance online that's kind of saying close to the chest for now but having this ability to use live feedback to iterate the performance. And I don't mean live feedback from just the audience because that is always relevant. Um, but I mean live feedback from me, the artist, who can only make the artwork in that interaction. Getting that live feedback, feeling what it's like for my body, feeling what it's like for the person's body, understanding how the room shapes, understanding how sound shapes the performance, understanding how lighting, all of these things, like, I, yeah, I must admit, I'm really loving it because it feels so validating to finally get fucking dress rehearsal. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's very interesting to me. I remember when, our, I think in our first conversation, you were talking about the disintegration of the wall between the audience and the performer. And I think in your previous works, you forced that wall to come down. And I think here you're kind of taking it away. I guess in more controlled works, you're taking it away brick by brick based on what you want out of any given situation, out of any given audience and i think that's a really interesting place to be in as an audience where uh, there's a semi-famous um i don't even know if you'd call it a play it's called sleep no more it's like you go to this weird weird house in soho i think and people do Macbeth, but they don't pay attention to you and you're wearing a mask or something and each performance is different you're kind of following people around i've never done it it's a touch out of my price range and the idea of going to a performance like that is that you don't have any idea based on your experience going in, how much that wall between you and the performer is going to come down. And it's kind of out of your control to begin with. So, I mean, two people might have, again, diametrically opposite opinions of the same work based on their own literal placement in the audience. And I just, I think that that's just such an interesting and right place for exploration is, you know, when the audience isn't sure of how much of an audience they get to be, how much power they get to have. Just on that note, the, the show that I'm doing in like the private preview that's coming up in Los Angeles, um, essentially everyone comes, they sign an NDA in which I give them explicit instructions of what they can and cannot do during the performance. I am hidden behind a curtain. They come in and it is just me and them. And the reactions that I have gotten from this are like, creme de la creme, like I had one man tell me that that performance made him question the limitations of explicit consent, right? And then like, I've had women tell me, oh my God, that performance made me question my own sexuality and wonder if like, 
because of like my cultural background that I really hadn't spent enough time unpacking my own sexuality. These are things that I could never tell to someone, hey, I want you to question the limits of consent. Hey, I want you to question your sexuality. Being face to face, body to body, having an experience in the flesh with the artist in the flesh, which is super intimate, which they of course have control of their own body. And I'm in a position, ironically, of kind of submission. I am silent, my body functions as a sculpture, more like a ready-made than anything else. It's really interesting to watch the audience and I'm, I'm having fun playing with, you know, commanding an audience's attention with my voice, like I've done in a lot of the performances. I can be really loud, I can shout, I can do all those things. Um, but it's also important to me to understand that my eyes, my physical posture, those can be also ways in which I communicate very clearly with an audience how I expect them to interact. And it doesn't always need to be this very loud gorilla thing. So anyone who's expecting all of the same from Una, get fucked. <laughs> good answer. That's a pretty good encapsulation of your whole, I think, aesthetic. Um, my last question to you is just about those hoof shoes uh, and how, how much runway you've gotten from them. I feel like every time I see you in a performance, you're wearing those shoes and I'm curious where you got them. I'm curious what it feels like wearing them and we can end on that. So Una is in if, Europe if, now. Yeah, real quick. Sorry, if nobody knows what I'm talking about, you have these like, they're like these high heels, but they don't have a heel. And instead of a shoe, it's like a, some kind of a animal hoof. And so you're like pitched forward when you're wearing them. Uh, Una has left the building. I think that yeah, Una I has gone to, my I goodness, that looks uncomfortable. So we're in Year of the Cow right now. And Year of the Cow is basically, yeah, what I'm calling this year from Art Basel, Milking the Artist, to what I plan to do with Art Basel this year, which is a project called Lip Touch Own. And it relates to my um, private previews. Um, and essentially, the Year of the Cow has all been about questioning women's bodies, the value of women's artistic labor. So we've gone from cow to the various obvious motif of breast, milk, butter, symbols of domesticity, semiotics of the kitchen, all of these types of things. And for me, it's because I'm always questioning, where is a woman's identity? Is it in the breasts that then become hypersexualized? Or are the breasts like the cow's breasts utilitarian? Or is a woman actually an animal and she should be used for her utility? And given all of the things that we've seen over the last year, including Roe v. Wade, including all of these like the infringements of trans rights in Florida, these questions are still really, really, really fucking relevant. Um, and so I like wearing these shoes because for me, they are a ready-made that helps to question where a woman's identity is. You know, and everyone thinks that they're horse hooves, but um, they're actually meant to be cow hooves. Um, horses don't really have the middle bit. Did you make those or did you buy them? Um, so you can purchase these on Etsy. I had mine custom made, um, but they are available um, that you can buy these. They're like costume shoes. And to wear them is a full body workout. Um you do need to engage your core, you cannot slouch, and you make a lot of noise as you go through spaces. Um, so they're not for the faints and they're not for the lighthearted. You really get a good calf exercise. And actually, when I first had them made, they were too big for me. And so I had to shove socks in the very front of them and walk around. And if you've ever seen Una at any of these events, you know I am like buzzing around, talking to every single person, never seated. So my feet hurt after I wear them, but 
then I got them redone to make them the right size. And, you know, I love them. I think that they're really important. And I think that they pair well with this breastplate, which I've been wearing throughout this entire year. And um, during Art Basel Miami, that is when I will reveal this new series that I've been working on, which is a visual art series and a new performance art series. And that is when the fake breastplate comes off. Um, and so we move out of seeing the female body or rather I, I, I end these questions that I've been asking myself in some degree during the year of the cow. We put away the hooves and we put away the boobs. Hmm. Next year is the year of the dragon. So I assume that you're going to be breathing fire. Well, uh, it's actually year of the lion for Una. So we're going uh, blood, hair, domesticity, diamonds. Some of my favorite things. Um, Una, before we get you out of here, um, can you tell the people where to check out this exhibition in the coming days, weeks, months? Um, yeah, absolutely. So this exhibition, um, it is called And. It's an exhibition on performance art and blockchain, curated museum of crypto art and Zora. Um, check my Twitter for the link. There's going to be a hyperfi world and all of the artists are minting their artwork today. So by tomorrow, we should have all of these things listed for sale. And that's at made by Una on Twitter, by the way. Yeah, and we would of course love uh, love your patronage, love your support. And if you don't have 0.015 ETH for six artworks, which is a ridiculously crazy deal when you think about how amazing these artists are and how really affordable that price is, totally understand though, because ETH is hard to come by sometimes. So if you don't have that, please enjoy the free book. Um, education should be free. Uh, it's just my rambling. So I hope that you do enjoy it. And yeah, check my Twitter, check Sam J, check Edgar Fabrian Frias, check Violet Bond, check David Henry Nobody Jr., check Dadagan. All right. That was great. Una, this was great. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming on today. I love our conversations and let's have you on again soon. I appreciate you. I appreciate everybody being around and we'll be back next week as soon as we possibly can. So everybody take care of yourselves, take care of others. And uh, Una, thanks for taking care of us today. Thank you, Max. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for being here. This podcast was edited and produced by me, Max Cohen. A huge thank you to Una for being on the podcast with me this week. Thanks to Julian Brangold for composing our theme music and to Day Fox for composing the cold open music. And thank you, yes, you, for being with us. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast. Give us a five-star rating if you like what we do and what we say. And if you want more stuff from the Museum of Crypto Art, please subscribe to us on Substack. That's museumofcryptoart.substack.com or follow us on Twitter if you don't already at Museum of Crypto. That does it for the pod, everyone. Until we meet again.